Welcome to the Leadership Detectives with Albert Joseph and Neil Thubron. This is the go-to podcast for uncovering clues about great leadership. If you are a leader today or an aspiring leader, this podcast is a must for you. Hey, hi everyone. Welcome back to the Leadership Detectives. Ready for another episode of, of us giving you some good clues to great leadership. Busy week for us, and we've got a lot of stuff going on, but really good to be able to spend the time here. And I'm really excited about where what we're about to do next. But I'm going to let Neil tell you more about that. Okay. Neil, how are you? I'm fabulous. Thanks, mate. And yeah, just we are busy at the moment. And it's great to be doing so many of these leadership podcasts at the moment. But I'm especially pleased about today's podcast, which I'll share with you why in a minute. But it's great to welcome Chris Hunter onto the uh, the podcast. Chris, how are you doing? Very good, thanks. Yeah, thanks very much for having me on. Great to have you. And what part of the world are you in, just so people know where you are? I'm in Herefordshire, a little town called Hayomai. And uh, yeah, just returned from Libya. So it's nice to be home. And I spoke to Chris last week when he was in Libya. And, and let me just introduce Chris. So Chris is also the first person we've ever had on this podcast. He's got a Wikipedia page. Oh, God, we are moving <laughs> up in the market. Oh, So I, I thought I'd just go on there and just have a look at what it says about Chris on the Wikipedia page. It says, Chris joined the British Army. Actually, it says Hunter, but I've put Chris in. Chris joined the British Army in 1989 as a 16-year-old army apprentice. He entrained initially as a Russian linguist working in defence intelligence and after four years enlisted service was selected to undergo officer training at Sandhurst. He graduated at 21 and was awarded the Carmen Sword of Honour. He was then commissioned to the Royal Logistics Corps. That route would eventually lead to becoming an ATO or ammunition technical officer in the bomb disposal, bomb disposal unit of the British Army. Served as a troop commander in the Falklands, East Africa, Northern Ireland, and undertook Arctic warfare training in Norway, becoming an EOD operator. As an operator, two tours in Northern Ireland, Iraq, and there's loads of other stuff in here as well about Chris protecting the royal family, working with the special forces, working with governments all over the world, and most impressively as well, got awarded the Queen's Gallantry Medal, which is not given out to many people. Personally, I'm I'm really excited to have Chris here because for those that know, I was in the Army Reserve and EOD as well in the Royal Engineer part of the of British Army, although I never went to some of the places Chris went to. Chris, it's fab to have you here and wow, uh, what a CV. Thank you very much, Neil. <laughs> if I wasn't feeling insignificant before, <laughs> I can tell you I probably am now, but um, I'm sure it's not all roses, Chris. I'm sure we got some... Uh, that there's something that comes with all of those things you've achieved in in life, and I guess we'll hear about them here. So, on, so look, that's the first question, Albert. Well, well, that was that was your introduction, right? So, it'd be interesting to hear Chris's introduction. So, Chris, um, imagine that you're, and we'd well, have to imagine it because it happens all the time. You're being introduced on stage, but you can choose who's going to introduce you on stage this time. Who would that be that does that introduction, and what would they say about you? I'd have to think about who it's going to be. But mm-hmm. if I'm completely honest with you, I think they'd probably say something along the lines of, you know, he's Forrest Gumped his way through his life and his career. And uh, <laughs> I've got no idea how he got here. So yeah. <laughs> for me, it's very kind of everything you've said there. But uh, it still sounds surreal hearing it. You know, I feel like I'm a normal bloke who's had a pretty normal life or maybe a slightly unusual life. That's about it, though. Yeah. 
Did you, that's interesting. I'll just kind of go off script a minute, actually. But that's an interesting comment to, to make. So did you plan that journey or did you stumble into that journey? Yeah, I mean, I, I did a bit of both. I mean, definitely I, I planned to join the, uh, the military. And my dad died when I was quite young. I'd gone off the rails. I was about 14 or 15, yeah. And um, gone off the rails. And when he was on his deathbed, we had this conversation. And uh, he said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I think I'm going to join the army, dad, you know. And he said, well, uh, I take it you're going to be an officer. And um, I was like, oh, dear, you know, no pressure. And uh, I said, well, yeah, 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 of course. And he said, take my advice. He gave me a lifeline. He said, go and get a trade first and uh, spend some time as an enlisted soldier. Because if your leadership ability isn't identified anyway, then you'd make a you know a pretty pretty shoddy officer anyway. So he threw me a bit of a lifeline, and uh, and I thought I better go and get a trade. So that's why I got into <laughs> the Royal Signals to start with as a Russian linguist. But I was the worst Russian linguist in the entire history of military intelligence. <laughs> is why I went to then Sandhurst and stumbled into bomb disposal. So yeah, it was a, a bit of each really. Yeah, I meant to join the military, but the rest of it was was you know very so, much. So you so you stumbled into bomb disposal then. That was the. Yeah, I mean, I, I basically... It's never I, a good I, thing, really, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I'd, um, I'd, I'd sort of considered it. I mean, like most young soldiers and army officers, you know, I'd had this fantasy about joining the special forces at some point, and I thought of going down the infantry line. You know, I saw a, a demo when I was at Sandhurst, and that kind of, you know, planted the seed. Right. And then when I was in Northern Ireland a couple of years later, actually working with, uh, with the Royal Engineers, as it happened, right. I saw a, a couple of car bombs at the headquarters in Northern Ireland and you know it was quite horrendous obviously and I know it's gonna be very upbeat so I won't sort of dwell on that but I saw the guys doing their you know the the atos that you mentioned yeah and clearing all the other uh, cars because after two cars had exploded there they thought there might be a third and um, I was so impressed with these guys and then I met them in the bar a few weeks later um and uh and just sort of gelled with them so it was kind of you know that was my calling I guess got right? it okay all right but 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 in that Chris I mean did did you did you always know you wanted to lead in this environment or were you just keen to be a practitioner in this environment what what was the bigger motivation i think I, it was definitely both i wanted to be a soldier for sure yeah. but um you know i joined the army cadets when i was 14 and uh you know got promoted within the cadets quite quickly when i joined as an army apprentice i got promoted as a you know a young junior soldier quite quickly and and sort of went through that rank structure and was identified you know as having officer potential i guess and i enjoyed enjoyed leading as well you know mm. i think as we all know and anybody that's watching this you know when they say leaders are born not made i, I think you definitely have something that makes you a leader or, or makes you predisposed towards leadership and obviously you know that's nurtured developed trained yada 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 um and, uh, yeah I, I don't know how long you've known neil but but there's actually a story of how neil's leadership began which i think was in his shed in the garden when he was about 12 <laughs> but if he hasn't told you it he'll tell you at some other time so yeah um, <laughs> okay it's on it's on one of the podcasts for anyone who's interested it is on another podcast that. if you want but, to but it's it. not about me but, so chris <laughs> with the, with the um you know with the vast experience you've had over the last well i guess if we go back to nice 30 years of experience of leadership and this podcast all about uncovering clues of great leadership what would you say are some of the the key elements of leadership that you've seen or learned over the last 30 years yeah, i think that's a great question and i think courage is very important and when I talk about courage, I mean, moral and physical courage, you know, the ability to do what's right, to overcome, you know, your own sort of personal um, fears, especially. 
courage isn't about being, you know, fearless. It's about knowing and identifying fear, being scared and doing it anyway. And I think that's really, really important. I think knowledge is really important and certainly the, you know, the continual pursuit of knowledge and learning. I think people always talk about honesty and integrity. Of course, that's important. You know, you've got to be able to trust those people that are in charge and that are leading you. And, you know, even if that person isn't necessarily, you know, a naturally charismatic leader, you need to know what makes them tick. You need to know where you stand with them, don't you? I think that's really, really important too. In my own experience, I think decisiveness is really important. Um, you know, it's very, very difficult when you're, especially when the, when the pressure's on and you've got to make a decision. You can't get all the information or your competitors are, uh, you know, also in that observation, you know, the OODA loop, the decision action cycle. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to make a decision quickly. I think that's really, really important. Emotional intelligence. I think that's really, really important nowadays. You've got to be able to understand people. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not just about barking orders. Judgment, humility, and communication, definitely. Communication to me is really, really important. I think it's the one thing I've seen continually through through my time as a, you know, as a soldier, as a leader, as someone working with industry as well. Um, those organisations where communication is is you know effective and clear and concise, they tend to do quite well. Where it's bad, they tend to uh, you know have some sort of breakdown. I think. And I could talk about communication forever, to be honest with you. I think that's probably the most important of all of them, actually. It's an interesting way, yeah, because it comes up regularly in, in these conversations, whichever leader we're talking to or person we're talking to. But how do you do that? How do you communicate well and in the environment you've been in? You know, what, what do the good communicators do and what do the bad communicators do? I'll give you an example from everyday life, okay? I think... When we go on holiday, when we're, uh, you know, when we're on the concourse at Paddington Station, whatever station, and the trains are delayed, the planes are delayed. Nobody likes being delayed. Mm. Nobody likes the unknown. But people actually are prepared to tolerate it. But when you don't get any information, that's when people start to get annoyed and start yeah. to get nothing. And that's when there's a breakdown. Right, and I think, right, yeah. you know, it's those sort of times that it's really, really important and I think as well, you know, we can get really tied up in, in the moment, um, especially when we're a leader and when we're in a busy, you know, operational fluid environments where decisions have got to be made. But sometimes I think you just got to take that check pace, take a breath, have a pause, reflect and just communicate where you are and maybe even what your intentions are going to be. And just trickle feeding that information, I think, is often enough for people to uh, and they feel valued as well, I think, when you do that. OK, yeah. And I think it's expected, right? And, and and I think that's what some leaders don't get is their their teams expect them to keep them up to date with what's going on, where they fit in the equation and so on. So look, some great stuff that you've called out there, Chris, right? And courage has always been one that we've had listed on here. Neil, you've got something on we, your we'll mind. We'll come back to courage, I think, as well, because there's a yeah. couple of questions I want to drill into there. But actually on communication in the military, I think one of the things I find in business that that, that is different to the military, you know, when you go through Sanders, you learn about an orders process, don't you? Yeah. You learn about having an O group and then passing the information down and then passing the information down. And it's one of the things I see in, in business that it doesn't work. You know, someone will go to a board meeting, ca- gather all this information at the board meeting, and then they go off and get on with their day. Yeah. They don't think about how they're going to communicate downwards. Do you think that's... Um, do you think do you, do you see that happening in your I mean the world you're in now but also in the world did that level of communication all the way down was that a secret to to good communication 
Yeah, I think, you know, certainly the world we live in now, you know, with uh, electronic communication, it's actually a bit easier to pass mm-hmm. on information. And the onus will often be on, on you know, the other employees to actually go and have a look and extract the relevant information right. from that vast amount of information you, you, you refer to there. Interesting, when you talk about that, that military orders process and, and the what they call the combat estimate process, yeah. I think one of the really good sort of components of military success is based on that process. And it's the idea that you know what your, your boss is trying to achieve and what your part is within his plan, but you also know what his yeah. boss in the next level above is trying to achieve <clears throat> and your part within that plan too. And the idea is that, you know, when a plan goes belly up, as it so often does, if you don't have the necessary resources or the necessary information, at least if you know what your boss is trying to achieve and his boss is trying to achieve, then you can at least do something to influence that for the greater good. Yeah, and we we, we did a session recently on vision and, and, and or a vision stroke, mission stroke direction. And yeah, they, they brought that into to the military orders in the 90s was the commander's intent. It wasn't yep. there when I did Sandhurst, actually. It was just coming in. Uh, but that commander's intent was really important but so that t- people knew that if, yeah, if their part of the mission didn't go right, they they knew how they might be able to adapt to achieve the commander's intent. Exactly, yeah. yeah. I was watching some of your videos on online, Chris. You've got a lot of stuff up there on YouTube. And if anybody wants to go and watch it, it's very worthwhile to listen to some of the messages Chris has got up there. But one of the things you talked up there about, Chris, is that what's different between what you did and what industry does is – You've had the time always to prepare. You've trained for months and months and months. You've got yourself ready. You're good to go. And it's different in industry. They don't always get that chance. So you've got some good examples. If you combine that with what you've just told us about what you think are good attributes of leadership, have you got some examples of great leadership that you've seen over the years that you've been doing what you've been doing? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, many of the... uh, conflicts that we've been involved in you know the Gulf War one it's, it's difficult when you talk about war and conflict to talk about it you know um, as a success or a failure it usually results in people's lives being lost and therefore mm-hmm. it's obviously a failure in that respect mm-hmm. um, but if you look at it purely from a military um, objective um, you know going into Iraq in the first Gulf War going into Iraq in the second Gulf War they made a, uh, a plan and uh, that plan was basically enacted and they effectively de- defeated Saddam's forces in both environments, both times round. Those were successful um, military operations, if you like. The leadership was sound. All of those qualities that I talked about were uh, were, were implemented, if you like, mm-hmm. um, and it worked. The Iranian embassy siege back in the, uh, the 80s, you know, the first yeah. time British special forces certainly had uh, been involved in such a, well, they opened themselves up to the entire world. You know, mm. that planning, the plan was put into place. First of all, they looked at the intelligence picture. They looked at the uh, the threats. They looked at all of the factors and deductions that might influence their uh, their plan. They came up with three options. They were well-trained way, way, way before the Iranian embassy siege actually took place. Mm. And then they built a full-scale replica of, of some of the rooms, you know, and certainly a decent replica model of it. And they practiced and trained and trained and trained and rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. So I think that that idea when I talked about knowledge and I talk about practice and training, it does annoy me, actually, when I hear other speakers from the military banging on 
about how the military does everything better than industry and industry can learn so much from the military. It makes me cringe and uh, I find it very insulting, but they do have a point. But I think, you know, what you, what you alluded, alluded to there, the point is industry doesn't always have the opportunity to train somebody up for a minimum of six months yeah. before some sort of tasking, and then continually um, mentor and, uh, and you know, reevaluate right the way through the process of the execution of that task, yeah. and then effectively have a six-month lessons learned process after the task is complete. But what industry does have is yeah. the ability to, you know, it's got experiential learning. So I think you can certainly capture the lessons learned, and you can certainly pass those lessons on to other people um, and have somebody responsible in an organisation for, uh, you know, identifying and, and communicating those lessons to other people. Yeah. So it is possible yeah. to agree. But I think there is a, I think there's an interesting point here. I would be less sympathetic with business than you'll be in, actually. Okay. I, I think there, I think leaders in business need to make space for rehearsal mm. or practising and, and role-playing. You know, in the sales environment, one of the you know one of the things we focus on the sales environment is role play, is rehearsing. But there are not enough times made for it. Leaders don't make enough space; they're just t- too busy trying to. And and what happens when you're too busy trying to chase things is their mistakes are made. Yeah. And uh, and the wash ups really key as well. We've heard yeah. this from a number of people. Is that learning experience again in business? They don't make enough time for it. And I think there's lessons there for leaders from what you've just said to you know make time for rehearsal and role play and make time for uh, wash ups and learning reviews um, I, I think i think the difference is here is chris is saying you have to do it in where he is and we don't have to do it in industry and they avoid doing it so it's a great lesson guys yeah. just think about how much more effective you could be if you applied the lessons that, that we just picked up there Absolutely so, right. And I'm going to come back to Albert's question, Vic, so I'm not going to let you off the hook on that one. <laughs> I wanted to uh, – there was a question – There was a question. the question he asked was examples of great leadership. You gave some great macro examples of Schwarzkopf and <laughs> – and, okay, but what about, you know, really real examples that you and, – and it doesn't – you don't have to give us the exact scenario. I'm more interested in how they were leading. You, what was a great example of leadership that you've experienced – or when you thought, actually, I just did a really good job as a leader there. Hmm. Well, I'm certainly not going to talk about how I was a great leader. Um, <laughs> I'll leave you to do that. Um, I always, it always makes me think of the phrase, you know, when you're good, you tell other people. When you're great, other people tell you. Um, but uh, <laughs> I guess the 7-7 the seven, seven bombings, actually, I was, I was heavily involved um, in the response to the 7-7 uh, the seven, seven bombings. Right. Um, right. I spent most of my career, as I, as I said to you, I started off in intelligence, training as a Russian linguist. Um, I was useless at it and then went into the bomb disposal trade for most of my trade, um, spent some time with the special forces, but finished up working in intelligence, um, interestingly. And I was across the road from Downing Street in the old war office building, which was the, the head of uh, um, defence intelligence. Yeah. I was the lead for worldwide improvised explosive device intelligence. So I had a small team. A multinational team and we would look at all of the terrorist use of improvised explosive devices around the world and travel out to certain places debrief them and we became you know pretty experts at, at what we were doing and i'd also helped the uh, the met police and the other police forces when i was in the army to devise the procedures for dealing with a suicide bomber should we ever have that when we uh you know in the uk when 77 kicked off 
I was with my team just down by Embankment Tube Station. We used to go and have a coffee down there every whatever day of the week it was. And I remember all our phones had gone off. We couldn't access the phones. And then everyone was sort of rushing around doing the same thing, you know, trying to get their phones to work. So we went back to the office thinking something was wrong. And then, of course, you know, we got the information from Sky yeah. News, as any decent intelligence organisation does. And I was told, go over to Cobra, <laughs> you're going to be uh, um, our subject matter expert on uh, on suicide terrorism. And it was fascinating going in there, actually, because uh, there's a guy called Colonel Richard Kemp, who I'd worked with in the army. When I walked in there, actually, I was expecting Cobra to be this, you know, like something off a, uh, a movie set, you know, like the situations room at the, uh, mm-hmm. um, that you see at the White House. Yeah. Basically, it's a room with a big, long table and... Uh, all the members of the emergency cabinet sit around it. And then there's a corridor and across the corridor, another tiny little room with six people in it. And when the prime minister or whoever asks a question, whichever minister doesn't know the answer, he then sends a quick message across to the person across the corridor. <laughs> they then basically uh, give the answer. Then he comes back sounding all informed. Um, <laughs> but we had one of the, uh, uh, the G8, G10, whatever it was, um, summits going on at the time. So, a lot of stand-ins were basically taking responsibility and, and taking actions. And this guy, Colonel Kemp, I walked in there. I'd worked with him before. And this office of six suddenly became an office of about 20 people. There was MI5, there was MI6, there was police in there. Very frenetic, you know, nobody knew what was going on. And the first thing he said was, ah, oh, Chris Hunter, I thought you'd be dead or in prison by now. <laughs> and that was a break, you know, there was a few expletives thrown in as well, but I won't, I won't use those now. And then... Um, as the, uh, the day unfolded, um, I remember sitting around a table and there was senior people from MI5, MI6. And the way it worked, you'd go into the Cobra room, all of the intelligence guys would sit around and have the conversation. You'd come out and then all the ministers would come in and they'd basically have their conversation. And we were all there about 45, 50 minutes into it. Three of the suicide bombings had, uh, had, had happened at the same time. And then the fourth one had just occurred. And there's all these very, very informed senior people from the intelligence establishment. And then there was me, you know, basically nobody knew who I was. And uh, I said, I think this is Al-Qaeda. And literally, you know, I could have just thrown a hand grenade in the room or something. And I remember this lady from one of the intelligence agencies saying, sorry, who are you and what qualifies you to come out with something so ridiculous? And I gave the reasons why. And then Colonel Kemp said, by the way, this is Chris Hunter. He's done X, Y, Z. He's done the procedures with the police. He's our expert. And basically sort of put her back in a box. Right. And then okay. for the rest of the time, he just got everybody in there to work together. You know, we would write a, uh, an assessment for the prime minister and then the decisions would be made basically and come down from him. And everybody had a chance to contribute to that. So mm-hmm. he would say, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And people had different opinions, but he would put them all in there you know, as decision points and, and conversation pieces, and then everything would go. So he brought everybody together in that environment. And basically, you know, nobody knew each other. Nobody knew what was happening. All our loved ones were in London or, you know, you know, somewhere where we were worried about them. We didn't know where they were in some cases. And just basically calmed down the entire environment and brought out the best in all of us, actually. Mm. Which, uh, yes, yeah, so on a personal level, that was probably um, one of the most remarkable experiences. That's that's a really interesting example, Chris, because some of us have all got our own paradigms of what it's like in the military, right? And one of the phrases that Neil and I see in leadership is a smart leader makes sure he recruits people who are smarter than him or her, right? But in, is that is that true then? For what you've just described there, that sounds like it's true for that situation. 
But my paradigm is that the leader in the military is the smarter person. Am I am I lost in there somewhere? I, I think sometimes it's a bit of both, Albert, to be honest with you. I think, you know, there are many organisations where the leader quite often is surrounded by very, very smart people. I, I would say our government, you know, there's a lot of very, very smart people. Prime Minister's clearly a, a smart person, but so are the advisors and ministers as well. When you're in the military, it depends on what unit you're in, uh, you know, at any any given time, I suppose. But I think if I was to sort of, you know, encapsulate or, or define what I think military leadership's all about, mm-hmm. I think it's probably the the ability to inspire others to achieve the otherwise unachievable in, in any given situation. Mm. That doesn't mean they wouldn't achieve something, but I think a military leader inspires them to achieve the optimum results. And that can be with a group of smart guys. Um, it could be with a group of, uh, you know, not so smart guys or yeah. capable, not so capable, whatever that might be. But I think, you know, a military leader, they're more than just a manager, certainly. You know, and we, we all hear that term management and leadership all the time, don't we? Yeah, but yeah. I think maybe the one thing that sort of, you know, is very unique to the military environment, you've got to basically get people, as Montgomery said, you know, to do people, do that which they wouldn't ordinarily do. Yeah. So achieve what they wouldn't ordinarily achieve, I would say. And actually, that's 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 true in business as well. Yeah, you know that phrase "inspire others to achieve the otherwise unachievable" is very similar. But you're just not putting lives on the line in the same way that you are in the military. Which leads me on to the next question I'd like to ask you, because in in any leadership role, and you mentioned courage earlier, um, and quite often courage in business or in leadership roles that are not in a an environment where your life's under threat you know when you're in a busy environment when you're under pressure from your boss or you're under pressure from customers sometimes that courage of leadership crumbles and you know blame game starts and you start thrashing out and what advice would you have for the leaders listening to this on the best way to lead and keep your courage going when you're under pressure <laughs> You've just put me under pressure now. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think <clears throat> I'll put my money where my mouth is. I always talk about overcoming fear and, mm-hmm. and breaking down the problem. So I'll I'll break down the problem there, if you like. Okay. Overcoming that pressure. Basically, we're talking about fear of the unknown. Okay. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, there are two types of fear. There's the the fear that comes from you know a fear of danger, and Danger is very much real. It's something tangible. Fear is just an emotion. Okay. So it could be something like fear of, you know, I'm going to be involved in a car crash right now. There's a load of uh, nasties over there with lots of guns and uh, they're about to brass me up and uh, and end my life and that of my team, you know, in, in the environments that I often find myself. That's that sort of fear that's very much associated with danger, with harm, if you like. Yeah. The other type of fear I see a lot, and I know you guys would have seen it all the time too, and, and your viewers as well, it's that fear of failure and, and fear of ridicule. Yeah. And it's interesting because in both environments, actually, or both types of fear, I would say the uh, the way to overcome them are the same. But just to sort of talk a little bit more about that fear of failure, fear of ridicule, my experiences in the military and then since on the public speaking circuit, you know, I've, I've been honoured to work with some exceptionally talented people you know, people with 40 pound brains, you know, men and women that are just absolute super achievers, you know, alpha males and females. And 
you sort of look at them and, you know, I find myself constantly in awe of them. And then suddenly, you know, I'll see them years later and find that they just disappeared off the radar or something, or, you know, they've made a mistake and it's been their, uh, you know, their undoing. And it's because of this fear of failure and the fear of ridicule. And it's, it's such a shame because it's absolutely unnecessary, you know, and I think most importantly, have another plan. You know, I talked about plan and rehearsals earlier on. You know, we, we always used to say if, if plan A fails, remember there's another 25 letters in the alphabet. Mm-hmm. Always have a plan B. I think whether it's that physical fear or that sort of, you know, fear of failure, the first thing you've got to do is accept there's an issue. Identify what that issue is. Am I actually scared of being ridiculed here? And actually then break it down. Mm-hmm. You know, has anyone really genuinely got the time to be to be bothered about you know, how I feel? Um, <laughs> most people in that environment are way too busy focusing on their own areas of responsibility or concern that somebody's going to ridicule them, you know. Um, It's it's something that's sort of, you know, it's it's almost unique to us as individuals, but we we see it as something much bigger than it actually is. You know, it's absolutely unnecessary. I think you've got to rationalise it. You've got to break it down and try and put it into, you know, compartmentalise it almost before you then go to deal with it. In the same way, like, you know, a ship, uh, a cargo vessel has all these different sort of bulkhead doors so that if there's a leak, it can isolate and contain it. It can send somebody to deal with that. You know, what it doesn't do is sink the whole ship and the whole thing goes down quickly. You know, yeah. I think that's that's really, really important. And I talked about that knowledge and that learning. I think learning something to fluency, if you can do, as a leader, you can't always learn everything. You know, you can't be an expert in every single discipline. That's why, you know, as I said, you surround yourself with the smart people, with the advisors and so on and so forth. And you listen to and you take that advice. And finally, I'd say breathe. And I'll, I'll put this into context if I've got time and if you're, you know. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. yeah sure. <laughs> like I say, I forest got my way through my career. But I, you know, I was experienced. I enjoyed what I did. I was passionate about it. I love being a soldier and a bomb disposal operator and an officer. Um, in Iraq in 2004, you know, that was one of those sort of tours for me where all of those things were tested in the extreme, you know. So it was a very sort of a pivotal part of my, my life, if you like. There was one evening in particular, May the 5th, 2004. Um, we were, uh, in fact, I've just made up the date there, May the 8th, 2004. And we were out on the ground um, in Basra in southern Iraq, dealing with uh, improvised explosive devices. We'd done a bomb in the morning, my team and I, a bomb about lunchtime-ish, and then another device in the evening as well. And the uh, the robot broke down, so we had to take it to, uh, to be repaired. Okay. And then we'd been out all day long. And then we were making our way back to uh, to our um, our accommodation, our camp, which was in one of Saddam's old palaces, as it happened. And we were driving back about 11 o'clock at night. And as we were driving through one of the areas in the southern part of the city, we were ambushed. And an ambush is absolutely terrifying. It's It's designed to kill everybody within the target area. And there was eight of us in unarmored vehicles. You know, we were effectively the humanitarian arm of the military if you like you know we were we were people that were there to to try and save lives we weren't really you know lean mean fighting machines heartbreakers life takers <laughs> we were there to save lives and we were all trained as soldiers we were all capable and i certainly spent time with the special forces so you know knew my way around a, a weapon system and a rifle but it was the first time i'd ever actually had to you know engage with the enemy at close quarters and Interestingly, when, when you're ambushed, like I say, you, it's designed to kill everybody. And as the bullets started, you know, coming through the uh, the vehicle, I remember one went through the side of my helmet. There were grenades exploding all around us. A grenade exploded at the side of the vehicle 
and some fragmentation went into my number two who was driving into his shoulder you know he was driving one-handed like this and I thought how cool is he you know just driving like that in the middle of an ambush um when it all happened and kicked off all of us froze and I was an experienced officer by this point you know but I had always expect myself to sort of you know show some sort of Churchillian leadership in this sort of environment but instead I completely froze and I couldn't understand why you know I thought I was a coward or something like that um when we sort of discussed it all afterwards and, and spoke with the uh, the psychiatrist and the specialists who, who, who sort of, you know, debrief all the soldiers that get involved in this sort of environment and survive, they said, we go through a, exactly the same sort of process. And effectively, our, our um, limbic system, our muscle memory, it's where we train, where we learn to fluency, everything is stored in there. Our normal day-to-day process in the near frontal cortex, the front part of our brain, is where we sort of, you know, common sense, judgment, um, on the hoof decision making, if you like, normal conversations. And when we're under extreme pressure, the, there's a lack of oxygen, a lack of neurosignals flowing to the near frontal cortex, the prefrontal co- cortex. So we can't function as normal. All we can do is draw upon the limbic system, the muscle memory. So if you haven't trained and practiced and rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed something before, mm. and you're under extreme pressure, then you're going to actually freeze. And it's mm. something that everybody will do if you haven't done that before. So what you've got to remember is that, you know, A, that's a, uh, you know, that is a symptom of it. B, as long as you don't get killed, then actually, you know, it will pass and you'll be able to function normally again as the oxygen starts to uh, flow normally again and the neurosignals flow to the front part of your brain. And C, if you actually learn something, if you plan something, if you go through all of the eventualities, if you, you know, can ideally do it to fluency, if it's stored in your muscle memory, then when suddenly something comes out of the blue, you know, hopefully it won't be as life endangering as an ambush, but something that just basically sets you off kilter. As long as you've planned it, you thought about it before, it doesn't catch you necessarily off guard completely. Then you've got something to draw upon when you're under under extreme pressure. Yeah. So I would say, you know, that's a really, really good way. And hopefully that's a sort of contextualizes all those sort of points I've discussed there as well. Yeah. And they're absolutely paralleled to industry and people we could be talking on here who are in commercial roles absolutely parallel to that right whether you're presenting to the board or whether you're getting ready for a key sales meeting to make sure you're going to win that deal all of these things are exactly the same it's just a different fear right exactly Um, and context yeah in context environment different landscape but yeah it's a good point though about rehearsing practicing eventualities and breathing yeah yeah I have to tell you, Chris, uh, you know, so for those that don't know, it's the first time I've spoken to Chris physically, right? You know, we've communicated online, but, and it's a very strange thing perhaps for me to say, but if I look at what you've done and the effect you've had on people's lives and the world in general, I mean, I mean that genuinely, you come across with a lot of humanity and humility. You really do, right? I mean, the human, you said right up front, when I talk about war, don't ever forget this is people's lives, right? So you don't, you don't, you know, gl- uh, you don't <clears throat> glamorize it in any way, right? And, and you're absolutely clear on that. One of the things we've been talking about recently is about how being human is a key part of being a good leader. What do you feel about that? I, I just think, you know, when I talked about communication being really important, I mentioned emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think being human is, do you know what? It's the most important part of, <laughs> of being a person, you know, mm. that sounds like, you know, stating the obvious. Yeah. But what I mean is, you know, having empathy, having understanding, having compassion. And 
in war zones, you know, I've been unlucky enough and lucky enough in equal measure to see the best and the worst of human nature because mm -hmm. war brings out the very best in people and it brings out the very worst in people. And I've been to a lot of war zones in my life, but I can honestly say with my hand on my heart that in my experience, people are fundamentally good. Yeah. What you tend to see is you see the better being brought out in people rather than the worst in, in, in people, even though you yeah. do see both, you know? Yeah, so yeah. I think to be a leader, I don't think you would be a leader if you didn't possess humility and compassion and understanding. And I think if you were, and you were, you know, morally defunct of those, uh, those qualities, <laughs> I don't think you'd last for very long. Yeah. You know, you, I think you'd be a passing fad. Yeah, you'd be surprised, actually. In, in some of the businesses Albert and I have worked in, <laughs> there are people yeah, who yeah. survived quite a yeah, long yeah. way up. <laughs> yeah. But we won't dwell on that. Yeah, but, what, 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 but what that says is, what carnage have they left in their wake, right? Yeah. That's that's the difference, right? So they might be labelled as a leader, but that's a different but, thing. And what could they have achieved if they'd actually had compassion? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Or what could have their people have achieved, you know, if they'd had yeah. that compassion and humility? Yeah. So I think, we, Albert, we should move on to the quick fire questions. Now. I think we should. Just, uh, I think we should. Let Chris kind of uh, relax a little bit and... Uh, and then we'll wrap up. So, yeah, go on, I'll so, let shoot first. So, so, you've got a lot of experience, Chris, but as a leadership role model, is there anyone you would highlight as a leadership role model that's affected your thinking and life? Um, I think Sir Randolph Fiennes, um, mm -hmm. in terms of what he's achieved as an explorer and as a writer, and Al Gore, the man who didn't make president. I was his bodyguard once, and uh, one of the most, I met him when he was really, really tired. He had no sleep for a few days. I looked after him for, for 48 hours nonstop and uh, one of the most inspiring people I've ever met. Yeah, Fantastic. Brilliant. Thank you. So, and if you were going to gift a leadership book, other than one of your books, obviously, but if you were going to get, gift a, le a book about leadership to a leader, what book would you gift? I would say there's a new book out written by the Commandant of Sanders called Stand Up Straight. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty good book. And I would say any of the books by Ranulph Fiennes. Okay. So something else for people to try and remember you and what we've done here today. Have you got a quote or saying of any substance around leadership that you would want to leave with people here today? Yeah, the, the best quote. Just remember when, when you're in times of difficulty, when you're in times of extreme stress, extreme pressure, the chips are down and it seems like there's no way out. Just remember that this too will pass. Hmm. Everything good in your life, everything bad in your life, at any given point in time yeah. is is just a given point in time mm -hmm. so it'll always get better it'll always get worse but just remember you know enjoy every minute of it when it's good and just remember it's going to pass when it's bad this too will pass Brilliant. great great piece I thank you we'll, uh, i think that's a perfect place to wrap up actually so and you know chris that's inspiring i knew you would be in these conversations uh great stories great knowledge and great linkage between what you've done and and what other leaders can take away from this um any final words you just want to say before we let albert wrap up just you know thank you so much for having me on you know i am um i know you've had some great people on on this uh this show and i am you know, I genuinely don't feel worthy. You know, the Forrest Gump uh, <laughs> comment wasn't me being modest. You know, I have to pinch myself. I, I do have a normal life with, a, you know, an extraordinary job perhaps. But I'm very, very grateful. And, um, you know, 
thank you all and i hope you you know your viewers are able to take something away from it this this beneficial thank thanks. you thanks. chris really inspirational fantastic to have had you here and i look we could have spent a lot more time um but thank you very much for what you shared with the audience lots of parallels for people to take away in leadership um and it sounds like you've had a fascinating start to your life and plenty more to go so fantastic to our audience thank you very much for listening please let us have your likes your comments your feedback your subscriptions um, and uh, and let us know anything else that you'd like us to talk about. But really enjoying what we're doing for you here, guys. Hope we've added value, inspiring current leaders and aspiring. So goodbye from the Leadership Detectives. Thanks, Chris. And we'll Thanks, Chris. catch you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Leadership Detectives with Neil Thubron and Albert Joseph. Please remember to subscribe, give us your comments and your feedback. Please also visit leadershipdetectives.com for all the episodes and more resources and support.